Raf. Yep. How's things? Things are fine, man. Uh, we had our first uh, stream since, uh, not stream, like live show since yeah. uh, March, a uh, year and a half ago. So it's been really fun. Uh, man, I had I experienced that. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, the post-show crash, you know, like it was so fun. We had like, we packed the Elysium, which is a venue here in Austin. It was really nice. And uh Uh, you know, I had all this adrenaline pumping and all this uh, serotonin, and then the next day I was feeling like shit, man. It was really weird. Yeah, very cathartic experience. Yeah, yeah, but it was good, and uh, it's uh, yeah, it's it's cool. Yeah, I'm happy for you. It's it's awesome. Thanks, man. How are you? Well, uh, it's been a hell of a week, but I'm fine. Going to the airport later. Oh, so yeah, yeah. traveling. Uh, well, not exactly. I'm meeting my wife, uh, and uh, then we're we're going to go back, you know, to the countryside, and maybe the next okay. episode will be already also recorded from there, as we did with okay. Harvey. So, oh. Victor, are you ready? I'm ready. Super cool. Hello, and welcome to the third episode of the House of the Deaf podcast, and we got a Raf Colantonio here. Hello. My name is Peter Salnikov, and uh, today we have a very special uh, guest. Uh, well, all of our guests are very special, but this one is, uh, you know, one of a kind, co-creator of the worlds of Half-Life 2 and Dishonored, Viktor Antonov. Hello, and uh, it's very nice to see you and hear you. Thanks for joining us um, today. You are entering the house of the dead. How are you doing? You've been, you know, out of sight for so many years and you are very hard to catch. It's been a kind of str struggle for Raf. <laughs> um, yeah, I, um, I'm doing great. Thank you. Thanks for asking. And the, um, I've been um, out of sight for a little while because, of course, I've been preparing something special <laughs> for gamers and fans. Um, a little bit like Raf, I... Um, um, I've built my design studio. I work with um, a, a very fine hand-picked team of some of the best concept artists that I've worked through with my career. And uh, it's an entertainment design studio, but also I'm developing a project of my own. And I'll talk about it in this fall. So mm -hmm. I didn't want to uh, say generic um, messages to to, to to people who are interested in in my work so I wanted to prepare like a really nicely packaged uh, update which will be this September so you're the first one that I'm mentioning this to so it's great uh, you know I hate the word excited but this actually is exciting so yeah we will wait for a further news and uh, I'm happy to, to hear this. So today we're going to talk about uh, believable worlds uh, that are uh, possible to be created in video games. And you are one of the persons uh, who actually uh, made uh, worlds that, you know, when you play Dishonored or Half-Life 2, you're not just um, finishing missions or levels, you are somewhere 
it and it's a, a real chance to to become someone and uh, visit some uh, some places that are completely impossible in the real world but at the same time in your work you are um, heavily influenced by the real world politics and culture and uh, I'm actually reading the book of yours the story of the colony and uh, it's uh, pretty you know pretty in intriguing uh, so far uh, so your, your worlds are heavily influenced by um, real life politics and culture but mixed with uh, some sort of Uh, science fiction elements that change basically everything in this real world inspired places so um, can we talk about balance between those things because you know uh, it's not just fantasy and it's not just science fiction but it's it's somewhere in the middle and it's unique um, yeah before we even um get specifically into my worlds or the one the things that I've designed uh, I'd like to talk about fiction in general and uh, where I started and I started as a as a kid when I read the first Hoffman story and Hoffman E.T. Uh, A. Hoffman who wrote The Nutcracker mostly known for the opera version but not for the actual book today Um, is the very grandfather of um, and, and father of magic realism. He took the, the monsters from the Black Forest because until then, until the Renaissance and the, the, the 18th century, um, the monsters and the witches and the magic was in the forest and the city was normal. And Hoffman took the magic and brought it into the city of the everyday person. It means into the life of the clerk, of the student, of the normal family. So he made a revolution, the writer of The Nutcracker, um, in mixing um, realism and magic. And this was such an impactful, impactful bomb. And then after this, who picked it up? Of course, it was Gogol who brought magic into the daily, mundane, boring life. But in order for the magic to work, you have to have a really good understanding of people, of their context, of their dramas, of their sufferings, of their hopes. And then, as an allegory, magic walks into these people's life and it changes everything. And this was a legacy that started for me, from Hoffman to Gogol, and then to Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who confirmed the genre with 100 Years of Solitude, where it's a real place, but magic is as real as the place. So we have this genre, and since I've, you know, I've been reading you know, a lot, always, it's one of my you know, uh, addictions, and, uh, and uh, magic realism hit at such a spot Um, um, and, and, and touched me and moved me so much that I couldn't find another way to express myself but through this, to say we have, you know, uh, uh, legends and we're pagans and then you have logic and then you have the routine of daily administration. So I'd like to mix all these things structure, engineering, which was my education. You know, I'm an industrial designer, and then bring the madness of legends into that. So this is the reason how I, you know, how I started 
um, to to um, tr try to bring up dreams and put them in a very real context. Yeah, so uh, uh, this could surprise someone, but uh, previously you've been working with Zatrix Entertainment uh, on games like Redneck Rampage and Kingpin Life of Crime. Uh, wonderful games from our childhood and uh, very beloved but um, I've read some of your interviews uh, there's not many of them uh, in the internet uh, but still and um, in one of them uh, you said that well to put it in short you are getting bored fast of the modern trends of this fail-safe concepts of uh, you know um, uh, polished but um, soulless games to put it like that and uh, games like redneck rampage or kingpin they they weren't some sort of you know bottom steam trash for one dollar uh, these were blockbusters but uh, no one will do a, a game like this uh, nowadays because you know some sometimes it's incorrect sometimes this isn't safe um, too risky and um, stuff like that mm, what do you think about that will things ever change back or because you know everything moves uh, in a spiral and maybe we will see another renaissance of games like this but not from indie authors this depends on developers um, in the gaming industry um, that are pretty much the generation it's Raphael's generation and my generation. If there's a will to make things specific and talk about humanity and talk about real subjects, and there's a group big enough, we will manage to do this because we have a lot of experience. We have uh, fairly important positions in the industry by now. Those of us who started at 95, 96, which is my case and Raphael started earlier than me. So it's a matter of, of um, a voice that um, would address um, reality and human drama. And human drama involves poverty, um, it, it involves grotesque, it involves violence, and, and these are subjects that are very important, just like, um, you know, happiness and positive dreams and hopes. So I think we can't exclude any of these um, uh, moments of the spectrum. And there are many writers, you know, we can start with um, Hunter Thompson, who wrote about Hell's Angels uh, as a documentary. You can talk about Hemingway, who spoke about the war in a very crude way. Uh, you can talk, I'm, I'm always giving, and will be giving literary references. Uh, you can talk about many writers who cannot uh, separate mm, pleasant, superficial uh, um, glaze from human drama. And as every good writer or director knows, without human drama, the, the piece of entertainment, would it be a TV series or a movie or a video game, has no interest to anyone. And uh, it's a fine line between portraying reality in a grotesque way or in a funny way, or in a dramatic and tragic way. So, you know, Redneck Rampage was the grotesque caricature, but it was sort of like Beavis and Butthead, funny and wild and free. It was great in this sense. Uh, 
Redneck Rampage was more like a cliche and a gangster genre. But all this addressed, um, you know, conditions. So I think uh, the, the, to answer specifically to your question, it depends if there's a community of voices right now of lead, leading developers that want to talk um, in, 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 in a sincere way about human emotions, about what's happening, let's say, not only in Louisiana, but what's happening in New York and what's happening in Africa and all that. And there needs to be a level of sincerity. It's interesting because I, um, uh, you know, I, I can relate. Like, and, and the more I age, the more it's important to me too. Like I've started with medieval fantasy stuff because I think that, you know, I had, I needed to get that out of my system. But even when doing some, fan some fantasy stuff, like with Arx Fatalis, there was always some super dark undertone that was actually relatable at a human level. It was not just about killing dragons. Uh, there were some other themes and, uh, you know, I'm super grateful you and I met, Victor, because you, um, um, I felt like um, I, found, I found a friend, but also someone that um, really get those things. And um, if I may say about Victor, Victor, uh, you know, we met a long time ago. Uh, I remember like he was in uh, 2000 and 2005 or, or five, I think. Yeah, and uh, then we started to work on the crossing together, and then I realized that Victor was actually uh, not just an, an incredible artist from, uh, you know, as much as like his visuals that he, he can put on a piece of paper, uh, the colors and all that, but more than that, he was also like some sort of a, almost like a historian and, and with uh, an incredible observant uh, mind, uh, which is also sometimes super funny, right? Because you will you will notice something about about uh, things in in real world, and you go like, "Wow, I've never noticed that before," but it's so true. And uh, so it's 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 been really, I think, as far as like creating worlds, um, that 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 historian approach of yours seems to be very important, right? Because you 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 know there's so much more than the image behind the image. And it, the, the, it's much bigger than that. It, it carries so many messages and so many of the history before that even when you create a world from scratch, you, you, you cannot usually start with something real and then you add like some sort of a condition to it, like a what if, and then, it, and then you, you imagine what would happen if that had happened. Is that, would, would you say that that's kind of your process? Yeah, absolutely. I would just uh, change two words uh, or one word instead of historian. Um, um, I'm really interested in sociology and anthropology because history is written by mostly by journalists and politicians and it's always wrong for one side or for the other. But a look of how, you know, society functions. So my, you know, I'm, I'm doing metaphors of what was the level um, or the conflicts during the feudal or the medieval age or during the industrial revolution more um, sociology and, and definitely anthropology. How would a human react, a human being react when his conditions are changed radically? Which is what happened um, um, for the past 2000 years because humans have existed for 2 million years, but for the past two, three centuries, technology caught up with us and, and took over us. And, and politics took over us and wars and over and you know population and all that. So it's it's more of 
like how do humans deal with these freaky changes that happen so fast on the longer scale and i believe that humans are still somewhere tribal creatures and still somewhere animals and this for me the contrast of the condition of industry politics and everything that happened to humans is this crazy landscape of uh, um, of conflicts that happen um, so absolutely, Rafa, I agree, but I, w- I would put it more to sociology because I have a problem with history. Every country I've lived in has a different version. Yeah, it's a, gr- it's a great point. Do you find it difficult to... Um, do you find... I mean, we both, we both have pitched games, sometimes together, sometimes uh, on our own. And do you, find to, do you find it to be difficult to convince uh, publishers or the industry in general uh, to invest in different worlds, the worlds that are not about, you know, killing people at war or killing aliens or whatever. Um, uh, Raf, you know, this is, as we know of the entertainment industry, we started when the, we had the luck, you know, the, the amazing luck to start when the industry was young and was not considered much at all. Uh, just like the Hollywood industry of, you know, cinema uh, was uh, below theater in Broadway in the U.S. And um, it, and then when you get to an industry level, it's a trade-off. So if you want to make something that's personal or weird or risky, you have to offer a counterpart to the publishers. And you have to tell them, I'll guarantee you this quality, or I'll guarantee you this accessibility, or I'm going to bring this amazing gadget to you that nobody's seen, but I'm going to guarantee you that I'll bring something that will make the players and the fans buy your game. And I will do all this for you. It's a pure trade. But then my condition is, other than our business agreements, I would like to bring something of my own to the project. So this is my approach. You can't just go out there and say, I'm an artist, I believe something, I want to do it, or fuck you. This this is not a good way of doing art at all, because artists have been craftsmen always. And through their craft, they bring value to the client, and which is the publisher, and then you can ask for freedom. But the, the level of craftsmanship of what you deliver has to be very high. So it's for me, it's a very simple, logical formula. If you want freedom, what do you bring to the table so the publishers would feel comfortable? Yeah, I agree. It's it's uh, it's cool. Yeah, I do. I do. Like as as I was saying earlier, as as I age, uh, it matters to me more and more to uh, to somehow. Like there's the artistic side, which is okay. What kind of world do I want to portray? But also, what are the underlying messages in there that can you know some some stuff that is just just you know an evolution of where my brain is nowadays compared to it was when I was twenty. You know. So you're talking um, about the um, p- p- personal uh, the fact of you uh, as a human and as an individual. That's very that's a very important topic for me. That. Individuals do matter in each industry because of their culture and because of their emotional responses. So we can't, I mean, of course, I'm against the communist version of standardized feelings, standardized products, standardized um, um, uh, behavior, because this never worked. 
Um, so I think, I believe in, in some level of authorship and some level of, of um, just being a, contributing to the industry and to the business. I think this is the magic formula if you can have both. And many artists have failed because they don't see this balance. Yeah. I want, I want to say something also that was interesting uh, when I, when I, you know, we worked together on, on a few different projects actually, and the very latest one was Prey. And I assume that most people, when they work with a visual design director or an art director, you know, depending what, what's your terminology, they, they think that it's going to be a five minute conversation and then there's going to be tons of drawings. And, uh, and then we're gonna pick and choose, right? But when working with Victor, uh, I found out that it was like very, a very different process. I remember when we started working on The Crossing back then, we spent three days together, talk about the kind of world we would do. Uh, and then eventually, after three days, you went away, disappeared for a week and came back with one drawing. And that's it, there was no like, 65 different proposition or like little sketches or whatever like wondering that was mind-blowing and that was exactly representing uh that thing we had talked for three days um and i'm sure a lot of people would be surprised by that approach right because traditionally uh, i've worked with a fair amount of of uh artists that they they just like as soon as uh, you're not even finished with talking about what you're talking about and they're already like drawing some stuff and uh and then send you like tons of stuff and you, you it's overwhelming. How 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 did you come up with that? Like, what's what's your? I assume you're still doing that. <laughs> well, that, that's very simple. Um, uh, uh, let's a symphony needs a reason to exist. If a composer would write a symphony, and it's an allegory of something bigger, let's say Beethoven's music is a representation of nature. He's trying to synthesize nature into a music that he can listen to in a, in a smaller format because nature is overwhelming. And um, uh, uh, the thing is that architects and industrial designers, and this has been a, a long process, and, and it, it's for me, it's very obvious that you have to find a concept. The concept is God. What are you trying to say? And once you know this, Making pretty pictures is a technical um, um, addition to that and a way to express it and put it in words. But without the you know, meaning, without the message, the, the, the sacred word concept, without the concept, all this is worthless. Um, and including the building of cathedrals or, or, or museums or buildings, you know, you can feel right away when the guy did it just technically and, and just starting backwards from the aesthetics. Aesthetics don't matter. They, they're applied later uh, in real good fiction, in real good architecture. Um, ideas and function comes first. So it's useless to start drawing surface details without having the skeleton you know uh, of a project and without having the brain and the soul of a project so and these things are abstract you can't draw them they have to come from somewhere that these are these powerful meaningful ideas and the rest is uh, uh, candy and sugar uh, on the top of it to make it more uh, acceptable but you think of a like a glass or a carafe and think of water 
the water is the content or the juice or whatever you put in it and the rest is form so we need the content first and then shaping and presentation uh, this is very important for me to start with a deep profound idea that reflects something that people don't even discuss but it's like this deep philosophical feeling and then if you're good enough to translate it into something that um, and that is aesthetic and beautiful, it'll function. And I'll give you just one example. Think of, of films and movies in the 30s uh, when you had the studio system and you had art directors. Their job was mainly to find a solution how to block the space so character can characters can interact and talk to each other, the stars. And it was not about making beautiful vistas or beautiful apartments, but it's a technical problem to solve and an emotional problem. How do I get a space that functions for what I want? And it's not about making it pretty, because pretty we can make it. You know, graphics are there, uh, we can make pretty clouds, we can make pretty sunshine. So the reason that I would start with one image is to just have people focus on the essential and then branch out and then branch out and branch out. But keeping the DNA of an idea. And you know this, Raph, that every project has starts with an emotion and an idea, and then it sort of trickles out and you can lose it very fast and it can spill uh, like water if you don't keep it in your hands. It, it can spill like you know, quicksilver on the floor. You can't catch it anymore. So this is sort of, for me, the, the, the DNA, the fetus and the baby of a project is this first image, first conversation. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, yeah, it was, that was a great experience and uh, it, it's always proven to be very powerful. Uh, you talked you talk for a minute about graphics. What, um, so you've been, you've been working, you know, graphics are constantly, constantly evolving where they, uh, you know, you, you, were, you were working back in the days, uh, you know, even like uh, on the latest project we worked together, we were still kind of like graphically super advanced. Uh, are you, I'm personally, you know, I'm just like, just gonna ask you, I'm personally a little tired about that graphics um, war or escalation uh, because it's a lot of, you know, compared to art direction, it, 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 it's a lot of time that is invested, a lot of money, and it's not necessarily moving the needle so much compared to like a strong art direction. Where, where, where are you going with your, I mean, maybe you don't want to talk about your next games uh, so much, but in general, how do you feel about that? I wouldn't say anything new, but um, the thinking always about perception and what we see. What we see and, and where uh, visual, uh, uh, the human brain before anything um, has superiority over other animal brains by visual, it's a visual brain. Visual information is the first thing you receive. So when you make an artificial world, like a game or a film or a painting, you have to guide attention and not uh, um, diffuse attention. So the first thing for me is not to add a lot of detail and, and polish every detail, but guide the intention. So look, uh, Romans were doing um, mosaics, then uh, Renaissance was using oil, and then there's sculpture, but the things that stand out have a hierarchy, and you, you have to understand the essential first and eliminate all useless information. And that's how photographers work too. Uh, the best photographers to the 20th, 20th century um, 
I mean, you have a car or a finger sticking in your frame, you have to shoot another picture for street photography I'm talking about. So you have to get to what matters and eliminate everything else. And about perception, if you look straight, um, you, see, you think you see everything, but actually if you just move your eye or no, keep your eyes straight, look at the left and the right, you start losing information about color, about shape, and by the time you are 90 degrees from where you're looking, you don't really know what the hell you're looking at. But you can turn your head, turn your eyes, and people assume we see everything. But no, our focus is shifting from one detail to another, one focal point to one to another. And that's something very simple that I, I think artists forgot. And they try to represent too much information for what the human um, uh, perception can read. And I think we need to down, narrow down information. That's why a simple pencil drawing works much better than a huge 3D rendering. Yeah. yeah, this is the reason why I couldn't play cyberpunk. There's so many people on the streets, so many things happening, but uh, you cannot access anything in this city. I mean, there's so much closed doors. Uh, so many closed doors and uh, you know areas that you cannot enter or you can enter only by one way uh, intended by the developer and uh, at the other hand I'm, I'm okay with uh, three people on the city square I'm okay with this I don't want no you know Assassin's Creed uh, styled uh, hordes of people wandering through sidewalks I don't need this because I'm actually I don't know what where to look, what to do, and uh, what to think about it. Yeah, yeah, it generates too much noise. Yeah. Hierarchy, hierarchy of um, um, of focal point and the capacity of humans to concentrate on uh, what's important to them emotionally. If yeah. you're in a huge crowd um, and and you you fancy uh, fashion design. You would just point out and check out the people who have the most beautiful coats. Um, if you're um, a cartoon artist, you would look at funny faces, for example, and funny gestures. But it's all about selective information. And, uh, and this is a very interesting topic concerning, concerning uh, uh, world building, because you guide the eye to what the people want to see. And then you have the invisible layer that they see unconsciously. And this is the rooftops, this is the, the, the gutters, the pipes, um, this is the door ornaments, and all these things people don't care about, but it still affects them through a different part of the brain. So uh, for me, a good design is where you deliver the obvious, but also you deliver the subconscious. And this is what makes the good setting and combination of characters and star vehicles and star props and then everything else that blends into a mask but it matters just as much but you need to make the distinction and often a mistake of, of designers will be to treat everything the same way uh, uh, like sort of a, a printer treats a page i start from the left i finish at the right i have to fill this page yeah that's a very very good point um i think the reason might be that it's tempting to it's easy not easy necessarily but it, it's uh, it's tempting to if you're making like a new game or i like can you know, to just 
blow it up with detail because you think that's going to be tangible you know, it's going to be better, visibly better than the competition if you like really pack it with as much details as you can. Uh, but you're right; it's not. I don't think it's about that. I think it's um, it's it's really about giving the information you want. I mean, it's like even like if you watch uh, an anime, like a cartoon or something, it's uh, it's easier to parse. Yet it uh, it's still emotionally as intense, if not more, than. Uh, and a messy movie with tons of things happening. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of some classics right now as you're talking of like uh, Calvin and Hobbes, simple as hell, peanuts, like the little cartoons in the in the in the um, in in the newspapers, just super simple uh, little drawings for children, completely legible, deliver the same uh, uh, emotional impact as you would see in a in a, in a huge science fiction 3d rendered movie just with one character one tiger one child and and two two lines yeah and, and it, it's and on the same time you know there's there's the las vegas phenomenon and, and hollywood uh, affected games as well that you want to also show off um the companies in general and that you have the the capacity to deliver quantity and shove it through a little screen. But I think I'm, I don't believe in this part. I think that people go nuts about rendering um, doors and windows and doorknobs and trees and all that stuff, because these things are easy to talk about and discuss, but deeper feelings and ideas are much more abstract. So we can't discuss them. We can't, there's no vocabulary, you know, and I'll give you one example. Um, my first day, you know, I went, um, I left Bulgarian and um, um, when I was a, a kid, seven, 16, 17, went to France and then um, had been dreaming my whole life to go to the, to the south, southwest of the US, which Raf did later than me, but I had my American dream first. And I, I took a plane from Charles de Gaulle and I landed in LAX. And wow, what an experience. But there's no vocabulary for what I, what I felt there because it was a mixture of noise, textures, humidity, smells, everything was so different. So you can say what you feel when you eat a cookie or, or a big ice cream or, or a chicken, but there's no word for this feeling when you, when you get to a new place, new world. And this is what you know, I was like, there's no vocabulary, but I need to talk about this differently. So I want to create these impactful moments when you get off the airport or the boat or the car uh, for the boat for my great great grandparents who went to America when some came back, but this sensation of re revelation of a new world. And there's no word for this feeling. There's more words, much more words in cuisine now. I mean, you can talk about mushrooms and butter and, and ragu and all that stuff. There's a huge vocabulary for that, but there's no there's no vocabulary for the big essential sensations that we feel. Yeah, is that is that why uh, when in your games usually you try to start with um, uh, a pretty like low-key chill approach where the player has a time has a chance to contemplate like there's either big 
establishing vista or, or something like some sort of a safe moment exactly that's a very theatrical approach i'd like to cur the, pull the curtains out and make people aware that the show is beginning and they're at a new place that i've never seen so it's a very very um, um old-fashioned theatrical approach where the yeah. cur curtains go off and there are the curtains now loading the house of the dead Previously, you uh, said about the codes and the love to fashion, uh, which allows the player to, you know, focus on the codes and the characters in the game. And uh, uh, a week uh, or maybe two weeks ago, we were joking uh, with the guys about the the correction for the uh, age limits for the video games, because you know they uh, um, often rely uh, on uh, violence, strong language, uh, or you know nudity. But uh, I mean, to play uh, and enjoy Dishonored or Prey uh, in the in, in the in a whole way, you you need to know something about the world, about you know the life. You need to be you need to have some kind of uh, education, uh, at least. And uh, speaking of the theatrical approach, um, this is—I think this is the, the question of the audience: Who are the players, and why are things the way they are in the video gaming industry? I, I have an instant answer to this. Mm -hmm. um, players were assumed by press and society to be idiots in the beginning of the industry, nerds. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, sort of uh, people who can't read books, players are goddamn smart, say fucking smart, and they're getting smarter and smarter and more and more educated. Um, so we can't cheat the players anymore with superficial and artificial gimmicks. They look for meaning, um, and and uh, the sophistication of comments of bloggers and fans has gone to the level where uh, you don't get this for film. Uh, a deep analysis of a game. So uh, this was a false assumption, like in all industries. Um, you know, um, we're, we're all uh, vaguely familiar with the beginning of Hollywood. Uh, it was Nickelodeon, it was uh, nickel vaudeville uh, spectacles machines for the poor and for those who couldn't afford to go to the theaters, uh, for the workers, for the immigrants in America. And then it became these uh, sort of vulgar, um, um, cheap shows. And then it developed into a full art form. But movie, movies were despised completely. Photography was a cheat as well before movies because it was not real painting. Uh, so we went through the absolutely symmetrical uh, path in the, in the video game industry where all gimmicks were tried and it could have been a bit well, it had its own beauty, you know, the pixelated games, but I think today, that's why I talk about meaningful content and backstory and context, because this works. All the small gadgets, would it be violence or special effects, you can't do much with that anymore, because there's always somebody who'll do it better. And therefore, yeah. you have to choose a subjective point of view and a personal point of view. The way Ralph has been, you know, he he uh, he always liked started his career with dark, um, a moody, uh, medieval fantasy, and it led to this thematic. Uh, I had my thematic, which is about uh, structures and and light and architecture and shape, but you have to be true to yourself. You can't cheat the you can't cheat the, the gamers, 
and you can't cheat your muse either. You can cheat maybe your landlord a couple of times or somebody else or some, some of your friends, but you can't cheat these two things. Players, they, they're so, they're like scanners. So they know when you're bullshitting them or not. Rough. I agree so much. I agree so much. And, and you know, with the, the, the a critique of the game industry, unfortunately, is that how many games are made with that in mind? You can't cheat the, the gamer and you can't cheat your muse. You said that that is that is an incredible uh, image because I feel extremely lucky that I've worked on so many games that not so many games because I mean it takes four years to make a game. So eventually, you know, you can only make so many games in your life. But most of the games I worked on was were made uh, uncompromised from passion true to gamers, honest to gamers, honest to myself, and also honest to my passion. And it led, for the most part, to games that were really uh, beloved by players, uh, because they saw that that honesty, uh, I, I presume. And unfortunately, I mean, we call it an industry for a reason, is that it's it's very rare, you know, it's very rare. And I think you, Victor, as well, was had that luxury to, uh, to uh, pick and choose and to be, take part of, of games that you felt were true to your to your to your heart, uh, and, and that leads to better games. But it's such such a rare thing. Most of the time, it's it's an order. You know, it, it takes it takes a little bit of um, youth and and uh, the arrogance that youth carries when you don't have huge bank loans, uh, when you don't have the rest of the the burden of, uh, of the universe on your shoulders. And also it takes a bit of being fan of something, truly being affected by something. Uh, and for me, it was just science fiction, um, a seed meat, and there's a legacy. So when you're young, you have this romantic side that you have to continue a legacy and fight for it. And on the other side, you, and, and you don't, you know, you're free to say, you don't like my ideas, I'm gonna walk away, go, go do something else. There's this unbelievable freedom that doesn't happen to everybody, like you said. And it takes a bit of stubborn personality to, to impose your ideas. And it takes a, a little bit of politics too, and a sweet talking, and you also you have to pay a price for this. It doesn't come Absolutely. to free, you have to deliver extreme quality. And then the magic being, it, it works. Uh, this is what happened to me. I mean, I, I, I started at, at Valve fairly young, and then um, I was a, um, uh, a freelance concept artist, and then uh, Valve invited me to become their art director. And uh, I, not being a, a gamer at the time, really, uh, I, I sort of said, look, but this is my vision, etc. Uh, I would never have the balls to say this today. <laughs> no, but it's so important, though. It's important to have a, to have a message, right? When you do such a thing like a video game, which is it's such a huge enterprise. I mean, it's going to take yeah. three, four years, many people, many iterations, a lot of stress, a lot of mistakes, coming back, changing, you know, and uh, it's very, it's very painful physically. In terms of sleep, it's very painful in every ways. Yeah, so so then it's very important to get to to, to that it's that it because you give a, a, a chunk of yourself, right? It, it's so it takes some naivete in of youth uh, to really bust walls, bust doors, bust roofs, and 
and, and impose your big ideas. Yeah. It's almost like a natural selection system, right? It's almost a, a deliberate system. You got you to be stronger than everything that is, that is thrown at you. Times of your life when, uh, I mean, this is more like a, our personal stories that when you're very young, you don't compromise. And when you've compromised too much, you'd say, I've had enough. And when you're at our age, you don't want to compromise much anymore either. Yeah, Just a little bit true. more than before. Well, it, yeah, it's it's good though to be in a position now where we don't have to fight so much, you know. But then yeah. it, makes, it creates a legacy in a way that, I mean, I've been pretty much trying to do the same thing for 25 years, which is have things that are uh, stories and cities with depth that are well constructed, um, that, that are powerful and easy to comprehend visually. Uh, and not something that the player has to look and think, what does that mean? Or my eyes are tired, but what did he mean? Uh, so want immediate visual impact uh, right away. And for this, you have to have a vocabulary. And for uh, for you, in terms of gameplay and rhythm and, and puzzles versus battle and viscerality of the game, you have to find a language that's engaging, just like in music. You have to find the right rhythm. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, and uh, with this podcast, we are supporting uh, the third um, game developers uh, contest. And uh, speaking about the risks, about the you know ambitions, and uh, power to uh, break through walls and bust doors and roofs, um, we are in the middle of a contest, and those who participate are actually able, um, ready, and maybe willing to be risky. Um, this is probably the main thing about it, and we expect some uh, cool stuff. Uh, last year, uh, there was a bunch of Russian folklore-themed games, uh, which is pretty rare. Uh, some of uh, those games were bad, some were okay, some seem brilliant. Uh, for example, we have a game about grim adventures of an orthodox nun called Indica, uh, and uh, I mean, basically, I think that Russian lore and culture are represented poorly in video games. It's always either something like Red Alert or Stalin versus Martians. Uh, but now things seem to change since the, the whole world is pretty interested uh, in what's going on in Russia right now. I mean, in the way of politics and culture and stuff like this. Uh, what do you think about it? And what settings, in your opinion, lack their cool video games and deep video games? First, uh first reaction would be I would expand Russian, Eastern European and to part of Central Europe because uh, frontiers moved quite a bit but uh, you know then we get into do we talk about um, 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 Slavic mythology but I, I would I would more generally talk about Eastern Europe in general and uh, I mean God this was again part of my naivete that I, I try to recreate uh, my uh, my uh, the city where I was born, Sofia, uh, at, at, at Valve Software, who, you know, had no idea about Eastern Europe because the first, you know, half-life was in, uh, in Arizona, in a desert and a bunker. So I'm all for this. And without giving a big hint, but, you know, my personal big project, 
I'd say that synthesizes or uh, probably will be one of my most, most personal projects is about this part of the world back in, in, in time and some science fiction. So I totally agree with you. Uh, there's so many treasures to be taken from legends, so many cliches from fantasy to be changed and twisted and improved. And they're and talking about magic. I think, you know, although being again, a rational um, a designer, uh, I know that places have spirits and every land has its own spirit and, and levels of magic vary through the world. There's a lot of this in Russia, there's a lot of this in Eastern Europe, and there's such mythology that's so powerful, and it goes between superstition, religion, uh, dreams and fairy tales. So um, totally agree with you that um, there needs to be another mythology established. But, uh, you know, America and the United States uh, were uh, the entertainment capital and home of the world. You have to have selective mythology that's collective for everybody on the world. It's always been like this since the beginning of Hollywood. So doing specific stories, I hope this is the future. And I'm yeah. one uh, uh, fighting for this. Doing specific mythologies and based on, based on what your great-grandmother did this, based on what you've heard from her before she died about 100 years back. And I, I have really a, a, a treasure uh, of, of ideas about um, the, the Finnish, Scandinavian, Eastern European, and, and including Slavic stories and legends that I would love to express. Just life is too short. You know, you know I, I feel like, uh, I mean, I agree with you. There's well, uh, America, America is... Italy has such legends and history that's yeah. fantastic. And even before Italy was Italy, I'm saying this because as you can ref imagine that Raphael is part Italian from his uh, uh, name but uh, uh, yeah the, the legends and before Italy was Italy was it was Sicily and Sardinia and Savoy, Savoy and it was it was this Venice and, and all these different kingdoms and there's so many cool things in Europe yeah but in video games it's just mafia yeah, I know what you're talking about. So, yeah, uh, absolutely. So, there, but you step back to Garibaldi and to legends, it's it's treasures. Now it's not the time where these kind of things are interesting. Um, yeah. I think now we everything is sort of streamlined and standardized instead of mythology, in terms of mythology. Um, but he got me uh, sort of excited about the subject because I've been wanting to do more of this. Going to legends. Yeah, and I think it's it has to be served to uh, to an American audience because, as you said, it's it's where the the big market is, and it's not impossible. In fact, um, uh, you know, I mean, even so, you talked about mafia, Peter, uh, and if you think about back in the days, like a, a movie made by Italians about the mafia would have been way harder to sell internationally than what Coppola did with the, with the Godfather. And uh, even though he, part of the movie happens in Sicily, in a very, very accurately portrayed, uh, you know, as myself, part Italian, I can tell you that what Coppola did was not kind of a, 
an Americanized version of Italy. It was really, really accurate. I can't say that of every mafia movies that have been in America, right? But I can say that about the Coppola stuff. Yet it was compelling and yet true to the to the place. So and I think so there's my point is there's a way, there's probably a way to to uh use all those treasures, uh whether they are, you know, in, in uh in Russia, Eastern Europe in general, definitely Italy, but even France, like you know, doing something in Paris would, would be would be fascinating. Uh as long as you do it with the right pace and the right approach, I think, that, that has this international eye. And that's, that's, that's where I've, I've enjoyed working with Americans. This is what I mentioned before, comparing form opposing yeah. to content, that the content is the treasure, but you have to put it in the right kind of form. And without Absolutely. this, nobody's going to touch it. Yeah, totally, totally. And that's, that's where, yeah, that's where we, we learned, like, you know, the world is, has so much to offer wherever they come, people come from. And, and I think uh, more international the developments are and, and we, we win from every angle. Uh, that's, that's really my belief. And very technically, um, um, it, it needs just much like film storytelling, you need a point of view. A good cinematographer, good director, with every shot he has, he would associate the, the viewer with one individual of the scene and not just show people doing stuff, uh, emotionally too. Um, it's sort of a standard that you have to have an Occidental Western point of view to understand any story. This is the standard and the filter. Um, and uh, of course, there was, uh, there, there has been so many uh, Russian villains um, and, and so many generic Eastern villains. And that's sort of the, still the 70s James Bond kind of viewpoint very old-fashioned mm -hmm. point of view um, but um, in, in order to to promote and create and pitch and finance you have to have a point of view of, of, a, of an occidental most likely American uh, character who experiences the story that's an interesting point well, that sounds like an evolutionary question for uh, the video games as a whole, as an industry. Uh, I totally agree with you, going deeper, uh, being more specific. Uh, I've read in some interview that you are actually fighting for the games to separate back into genres and stop being uh, everything at the same time. When you got, you know, I, I think it started in like... 2007 maybe uh when this was a very old interview when games yeah. were trying to be everything at once yeah and there were fewer games on the market now this branching is happening absolutely you know i have yeah. my son uh, uh this a huge mario fan and he has not really gotten into multiplayers yet um He's not the age to play Doom, which I worked on, but I showed him a little snippet without telling anybody. So he loves Doom. So there's all these different choices of. Um, I did the same the thing. Genre. And it, it, yeah, this yeah. is happening, and it's helping everybody. So you don't have to. You can't please everyone. And with Ruff, when we when we try to pitch games or or create games or launch things, the biggest um what we hit always was formulas uh every year there's a new formula for success and formulas don't go damn work 
Yeah, you know, the entire world is like that. It's every everybody tries to put the world into formulas. Not only video games. I I realize that it's the same now in anything. You know, marketing for music, for example, because I'm starting to get interested in that. And then you see like those videos about here are the ten tips and secrets to make to make it in the music. <laughs> and it's like, well, if you give me the ten tips and secrets and to everybody, like we're all gonna apply it, and it's not gonna work for anyone. Yeah. So it's the same. You know, it's so funny. And try this with friendship or with love. Uh, <laughs> backfire into your face in a second that doesn't work or in education for that matter yeah but it's true the industry is is, does that for sure like in many industries but I remember like when there's a you know when there's a new console or something like from now on everybody has to use this new little thing that we want you to use you know and even if it doesn't serve your game there's this model of uh, a model of whatever that does better than the other model well, we still survived. This is not this is not uh, at all complaining or whine, uh, whining about anything, but it's just an analysis of how uh, you know it can carry fiction through an industry. And yeah. literature had its censorship and form uh, in the 18th, 19th, 20th century as well, and so had music, so had television and, 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 and movie industry. So we're not in a worse position than any other industry in terms of constraints. No, it's just that you have to hit the sales though. You have to find the loopholes how to get through them, and that's a hell of a puzzle. And sometimes it's just pure, uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm gonna go and try to do it and see if it happens. Well, that's part of what, that's part of the fun. Uh, we still have um, AAA games that uh, still try to be uh, an RPG, uh, third-person action, uh, and uh, I don't know a ship sim at the same time. And people buy those games, and we we see amazing sales, and uh, it's it like uh, it looks like this can never be stopped. And previously, you told us about the, uh, you know, the the need for uh, strong voices and some kind of community of the, you know, important people in the industry that can unite and strike back. Why don't you do it? Why didn't you still? Why is there no community or unity like this? I wouldn't use the word strike. Um, you have to, um, as a community. You have to talk first to the fans, then get, you know, there's a lot of work of evangelizing. And um, Raf, like myself, we've given a few conferences, we've given a few interviews, but um, we can't become um, uh, sort of these prophets of, of theory of the industry. We have to make projects. And uh, I'm trying to be uh, to voice out my vision of of the industry as a vehicle of science fiction and as fiction in general, and in, in these fairy tales. But yeah, I agree 100%. We don't want to create a committee or something. Uh, we, we don't want to formalize this, so it comes best through our work. And, uh, and uh, the big paradigm is that we were fairly independent. We have uh, the, the, the comparison and we work for big corporations. And now uh, I think we're, um, I'm, I'm 49, I think, rough your, uh, doesn't matter, you're 40, you're 25. <laughs> and 25 times two. <laughs> 
but um yeah this is our um this is the next set of projects that we're going to do um and it's through projects that we express ourselves not through um through unions yeah i i absolutely agree i think uh i think it's important that you know everybody voices what they have to in, in like this a few um let's say you know big names in the video game industry but i would hate to centralize it or strike or anything like that in a sense that you know there are newcomers there there's going to be new people that that are going to be amazing as well and uh, and uh you know they need space and they need to surprise us i think i think that's how it happens right there's no right now we're we're doing this with raft right of this podcast we're voicing um a certain theory yep yeah that's Hopefully. exactly what i'm certain point of view how, how do you do you see yourself making games in 20 years creating worlds i mean if in 20 years i would have no choice because my my kid now plays games and uh, he's gonna be asking me to make a game for him uh, so basically that uh, no matter what I do I'll, I'm not I can't get out of this industry I'm not getting out of this industry I may do other things but it's uh, it defines my career and my life as a mean of expression so uh, oh. I, I've I'm working on, on film again on, on feature film and, and television series but uh, uh, games is where uh, I can fill the pools of a community the best, the way music bands used to do that. I mean, let's talk about community just for a second. Um, uh, the, even the, the, the Beatles and, and even Pearl Jam and, and uh, um, Soundgarden, I mean, all these groups had a community behind them. Uh, and, and right, I think now the communities are bigger behind games than, than individual groups and singers. Because when I was a kid, it was like, are you a heavy metal or a new wave? Boom, bang, uh, a fight would, you know, start right away. Punches fly if you're, you know, you, you had to be like, oh, heavy metal, hard rock or, or new wave. This was the three things in the 80s when I was a kid. Um, but people are passionate about it and, and, and they united around a certain music with a certain philosophy and a lifestyle and a look. Now, uh, I think games took over this because it's definitely not, oh, I'm a Star Trek fan and you are a Star Wars fan and I'm going to punch you. That It doesn't work like this. Uh, it's more like the communities that are really strong is about, you know, the gaming communities are the, the bigger, the biggest ones. And when I would do a game, I would reach a whole bunch of kids and adults and people into their 40s and 50s now. Yeah. Well, I hope we'll get to do another one together. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a new announcement, but I didn't know about it, but definitely, yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> that's the first time we announce it. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh... Thanks for your time, Victor. Uh, it was a pleasure. I hope to see you in person someday. Uh, well, it, it gets uh, you know gets weirder and weirder, uh, but still. Where are you um, physically located? Uh, in Moscow, or yeah, somewhere nearby. Well, let's get rid of the these um, flying constraints and and the and the um, the yeah, the COVID situation, and you know. 
spent most of a, like Raf, who've been going back and forth all over the place. And I know that Raf uh, dreams about visiting Russia, so we can actually arrange a meeting <laughs> someday um, and, you know, have some fun. I agree. Uh, I'm thank already you guys. supposed to come with Leo. You remember Leo? He's, 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 he always wants me to take to, to Russia, so we'll, we'll go there someday. Well, Rafi introduced me to Texas once, so... Okay, well, thank you. Thanks a lot. I mean, this was a very personal sort of uh, a conversation. I hope this is what this was about. Yeah, yeah these are more totally. fun. Yeah. <laughs>